You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Kissinger called me and said, Anatoly, I've been on a trip. I knew he had been to Asia, but China? That was a surprise. At the Central Committee, the news hit us like a bolt from the blue. My colleague said, America will be China's ally. Kissinger, what else has he agreed? When Nixon visits Beijing, anything could happen. All this will make things very difficult for us. Where will it all end? As we move closer to China, the Soviet Union didn't want to be left behind. They moved closer to us. So the Russian game made the Chinese game work. The Chinese game made the Russian game work. Hi, Henry. How are you? Okay. Fine. Well, that was an interesting evening. Wasn't yeah, he's a fascinating man. Yeah. And it was interesting for all those other people to hear these, you know, hearing talk and so forth. And uh, really hope somebody will make a mental note of the whole thing. Yeah. I, yeah. I thought he was more fascinating in the afternoon than he was in the evening. Because of the yeah. Yeah, of course. The, our afternoon session was more profound, actually. Evening. He's had a very interesting... Yeah, I know, I know. That's But that's the kick. That's the kick that all the libs are on, you know. Well, let's see. So we can... But we can we can tell them we're willing, but they aren't going to... They don't want that. Oh, no, no, no. We can tell the libs we're willing, but we're not going to tell Mao that. Hell no, because he ain't going to ask. Right. And I don't, I don't think he's going to ask through a second uh, liner either. Incidentally, he said a very interesting thing at the end of the evening as I was at the car, and I want you to get the translator to see if he can recall it. Give it to you, he probably can. He didn't write it, but he, he said, he, uh, before he got into the car, he said, I am not General de Gaulle. But he says, if I were General de Gaulle, I believe I would say that works to this effect that your trip can change the whole future of the world. And I wish you well. It was a very, I don't know whether I, I didn't get it. He said something in more detail than that, but that was the, the sense of it. But if you could be sure the translator sees it, he can try to remember that part. Because that was the most significant thing he said. I thought that was a very nice touch, wasn't it, though? I think he was. I think he was kind of moved by the evening itself too, you know, and the afternoon. Oh, did he? Good. Oh, wasn't that brilliant? Incidentally, I was leading him on there because I'd read his stuff on there. 
and he described Nehru as a rather cynical politician. You know? I felt it was important to give him a little feeling of I was trying to do that that we too have sort of a sense of the mystery and the mystique, you know. The whole feeling of you know of the, the you know, of uh, that maybe none of the modern American leaders, but a Lincoln had that feeling and people thought he had. Because you see, uh, the French are greatly moved by mystique. Don't you agree? Are they really? Oh, yeah. You know, when I left speaking on my first trip, I was taken to the airport by this marshal who's now under three now. Yeah. And he said, uh, as we were driving into the airport, he said, you know, when I joined Mao, I had heard of the teacher who was in the mountains. You have to remember, Mao is not a military man. Yeah. He's a teacher. Yeah. And we never thought we were doing anything for this generation, but for, for many generations. I think it is. And we've got to play it that way with great, great uh, dignity and no uh, abrasiveness, but uh, great confidence. This is one of the things I really don't think that with all of our you know, deference to them. fellows like our like Agnew or, or even Connolly could handle this. I think this is one thing. What one of, well, it isn't that I understand it, but it's and it isn't my experience, but I I think I'm I once said to when I lived in the West and went to school with Chinese, I'm a li- I'm I'm a little more Chinese than many Americans. It's really true, you know. Because they, they have dealt with tragedies. Too. They have dealt Well, and the other thing, too, is that, boy, I'm telling you, you ought to feel pretty good about this day. After all your damn suffering, those son of a bitch trips, why, you and I know something that none of those other fellows knew. That's right. Keep it close to it. Yeah. Well, but he didn't say it quite that way. He said it better, but. That was the, I think, what, and if you get the translator, if he will give you what, and see if I can have it, because I think he was trying to say something. So we'll never see him again. He won't live much longer. Oh, God, he is. You know, he, 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 gets, he gets hung up on the economic thing. But, but on the other hand, wasn't interesting where he said, Senator Kennedy said that, and he misinterpreted it. It was a social luncheon. And, yeah, and then he said it was a social function, and I was simply saying that that uh, looking at the situation in the world, this is the poorest country, most populous, and this is the richest country, so this is the natural way they should get together. Looking to the future, that may happen, but it ain't going to happen on this trip. You know, the one question we didn't really get an answer from him is why 
he believes the Chinese wanted this. Oh, he thinks it's because they, uh, in a sense, of capital construction and because they think they can get it on this us. I know, and I think that's wrong. Totally wrong. They're doing it for See, that's, he's, that's the typical attitude of basically a Marxist. That's right. But not the... One, because they feel threatened. Second, because they do want to solidify their rule and get themselves some legitimacy and only well, you can do that. And he hit that point that they, he had, when he made the three points that Mao wanted to have before he died, that China must be united, of course, that's mm -hmm. Taiwan. Second, that, uh, the point that uh, China should be a great nation respected and third, economic progress, I guess. We will, you can be sure, we won't raise it. No. That's up to them. Don't you think having him over was a good idea? Uh, you were on Air Force One uh, on on the, in February uh, of '72 on that trip. What uh, what was that flight like? I th the the thing the thing about the the flight to China was one of the things was that it was just kind of surreal. The plane is taking off to go to China, and we've got a television set there watching us take off. I mean, it, you have to remember that. Everything about that trip was televised. I mean, it was a production from start to finish. And that was one of my major assignments, working with some of our people like Dick Moore and Tex McCrary and the, the, the savvy media people. I mean, we plotted a lot of what we wanted to see happen when it was going to take place, you know, how it would feed into the networks and so forth. The flight over... Uh, we stopped in Hawaii, and then we stopped again in Guam, and we made sure that the president had some rest time at, along the way there, so that when he arrived on the 26th of second, second, well, we took off on the 22nd. Oh, arrived, yes, yes, yes. So when we arrived in China, oh, yes. he, was, he was well rested. We, we stopped uh, on the way in. We stopped in Shanghai and picked up some... Uh, engineers, and so forth for on the plane, and then we flew on into Beijing, Peking. This is in the cabin, the presidential cabin on Air Force One, and he is with, you can't see it very well, Secretary of State Rogers, who's on trip, and Assistant to the President, uh, Dr. Henry Kissinger. I briefed him just before we got off the plane in, uh, in uh, Peking, Beijing, and a significant thing was the handshake, as you'll see in just a minute. In, in, uh, to go back to 1954, our then Secretary of State, John Forster Dulles, excuse me, yeah, Dulles, Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C., refused to shake hands with Joe and Lai. Joe and Lai considered an insult for all those years. President Nixon wanted to rectify this and said the importance of the handshake, keep everyone else back and make sure that he knows that I really want to 
shake hands with him and to rectify anything that happened in the past. We're starting again. This is the official arrival in uh, Peking. As Larry said, we stopped first in Shanghai and had to get a navigator and two interpreters to fly in. This is the arrival ceremony. And notice they're incredibly tall Chinese military, all exactly the same height. Uh, <laughs> and of course, they had 750 million people to choose from, so they could probably do that. Get them these. And what else is very significant here? No civilian population. Almost anywhere we went in the world, especially those seeking out foreign aid, there were thousands and thousands of people cheering. And so when I saw this, I said, uh, maybe they don't like us. What is this about? No one at the airport to greet us. It was a sunny day when we could arrive, but as we, we started into Beijing, and it's about an hour trip in, it kept getting more and more gray, and we were sort of getting into this ominous of the trip, and we kept waiting for crowds. And there were no crowds, and on all of our cars, they had curtains on the side, so we couldn't see out. Well, after a while, I started getting curious and pulled the curtain back and looked a little bit, and people were staring. We all had to stay five or six blocks back from the main room, from the main route, but they were staring out and peering out behind their houses to see what was going on, because you would have thought nobody lived in Peking if you looked at the road we were going into, but in fact, there were people staring everywhere. Wondering what was going on. Remember, no wondering why they weren't allowed to ride their yeah. bicycles yeah. that day. No communication, no newspapers available to them, so they had no knowledge of what was happening. Christen the spirit of '76. Taxis to a stop on the runway of the Peking Airport, and Premier Zhou Enlai moves forward to greet the first American president to set foot on Chinese soil. Harry Reasoner was there. There's Mr. Nixon and the president. Premier Joe, as we expected, is there to greet him. And directly behind uh, the premier, his interpreter. Mr. Joe speaks English, but he uses an interpreter. behind him, a greeting to Mrs. Nixon, Secretary Rogers, Secretary of State coming down the ramp as you see, now other members 
of the Greeting Party, that is Vice Chairman of the Military Commission, Yachang Yang. The Vice Premier, Li Xianyan, the man without the hat there. We can't identify all of these for you. That's Kuo Majo, also without a hat. As you notice, as you notice, uh, these are not all uniformly dressed in the tunics as we'd expected, some with Western overcoats. The foreign minister, Chi Ping Fei, right there, just being greeted by the president a moment ago. And further details of the president's China visit will be broadcast live over most of these CBS stations immediately following this broadcast. The leader of that other China, Chiang Kai-shek, went before his National Assembly in Taipei today to lament what he called a worsening world situation. The 84-year-old Chiang also said he will not seek re-election as president of nationalist China, but indicated he would be willing to accept a draft. David Henderson reports. Delegates attending the opening session of the National Assembly, Taiwan's Electoral College, had heard it before. So there was no surprise, in fact, some expectation, when Chiang Kai-shek announced his desire to step down. What he said made little difference because a draft movement has been going on for months. Nationalist China's 84-year-old president asked the assembly to choose a new person of virtue and ability, as he termed it, to succeed him. But many believe Chiang made the remark out of traditional Chinese modesty, as he's done before previous presidential elections. The timing of Taiwan's National Assembly convening and Chiang's short speech had nothing to do with President Nixon's visit to mainland China. The session is required by Taiwan's constitution a month before presidential elections are held on March 21st. And in light of recent diplomatic setbacks for the nationalist Chinese, President Chang is expected to accept the draft next month to go on to a sixth term. David Henderson, CBS News, Taipei. Enemy forces attacked three U.S. air bases in Vietnam this evening, shooting down two U.S. helicopters and damaging four others. Two Americans were reported killed and ten others wounded. One of the attacks took place at the Big Ben Hoa Air Base just outside Sagan, which was shelled by a half dozen enemy rockets. More from China on this broadcast and live coverage of the president's visit to China will be resumed over most of these CBS stations immediately following this broadcast. These are the common scenes of Peking. Still unusual to an American audience, but essentially what you're seeing now is the fabric of life in today's Peking. Members of the People's Liberation Army still constitute the closest thing to an elite in China, but with the recent ouster of Defense Minister Lin Biao and several others of China's top military leadership, even the People's Liberation Army is cautioned to be modest and to learn from the workers and the peasants. In any event, the army in China is already closely integrated with civilians in their jobs and in the revolutionary committees which make up their local government. Life in China is certainly drab by Western standards. Pictures of Chairman Mao beamed down benevolently from many public buildings. Displayed in glass showcases, they can even constitute a form of public entertainment. But the pictures and the red and white propaganda slogans provide the only splash of color in an otherwise gray city. Shoppers in Peking's food markets are almost equally divided between men and women. Both sexes tend to be fully employed, but they may work different shifts, so husbands are as likely to shop as wives. 
A typical working couple here earns about $55 a month, but that can go a long way. Food is cheap. These ducks cost about 40 cents each. And rent for a two-room apartment with kitchen and bath can cost as little as a dollar a month for the average Peking citizen. It is still a harsh life by Western standards, but less harsh than it's ever been before. This is Ted Koppel, ABC News, Peking. The president's trip has sparked a China craze of sorts. Lots of things from and about China can be seen and heard in any number of cities and towns. David Culhane reports from New York. If you can't go to China, and most of you can't, for the moment anyway, you could do a lot worse than getting a look at this photographic exhibit at New York's Metropolitan Museum. It's probably the most comprehensive photographic display on China ever put together. Everything you ever thought about China is there. The cliches, the stereotypes, but also the truth, the startling reality of China. The photos cover the last hundred years, the century in which China went from rule by warlords or colonial powers to the unified nationalistic world power that it is today. In many ways, traditional Chinese culture was highly civilized. Ancient religious forms were preserved in monasteries. But the photographs also portray primitive elements in Chinese society. Serious criminal offenses were punished by death, slow starvation and strangulation in this cage. Through this period, China endured many wars and the constant weakening of its governments, none of which discouraged Western tourists. It was not at first evident, but the one force that was to persist and gather strength in the land was Chinese communism, and the one man, Mao Zedong. Throughout the 1930s, Mao and a relatively small band of followers survived repeated attempts to destroy them. The famous Long March, the communists traveled 6,000 miles on foot to escape their enemies, and ultimately they prevailed. The last days of Chiang Kai-shek's government, Cartier-Bresson's famous photo of the money panic. An old man searches for his son as Chiang's troops march off to their final defeat. And now the China of today, industrial workers, the drive for literacy, regimented political life. The China that President Nixon will see. David Culhane, CBS News, New York. Dan Rather is in China. Not much of a headline, but his trip does give a young kid a break back here. Morton Dean, CBS News. Good night. Direct from our newsroom in New York, this has been the CBS Sunday News with Morton Dean substituting for Dan Rather. This is CBS. <laughs> This is Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone could embrace 
an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. Tiananmen, the gate of heavenly peace. Here in a few moments, the President of the United States will pass through a modest scattering of citizens of the People's Republic of China. Another step in this historic trip, the subject of our broadcast tonight. This is a CBS News special report. The President in China, arrival in Peking. This broadcast is sponsored by... Western Electric. We make things that bring people closer. And by American Express, the company for people who travel. Here now is CBS News correspondent Charles Collingwood. President Nixon has left the airport where he was received with all the honors the Chinese felt due to a visiting potentate whom they do not diplomatically recognize, but recognize as a potentate nevertheless. It was, in some ways, a modest welcome. The president had no mass outpouring of people to greet him, but Premier Zhou Enlai was there. President Nixon's motorcade is now sweeping toward the city of Peking, and its focal point, Tiananmen Square. As the president approaches, Walter Cronkite tells us about it. Charles, uh, the remarkable thing about uh, Tiananmen Square at the moment as the president approaches is that uh, you wouldn't know a president was approaching. Uh, There is absolutely no evidence that uh, there's been any attempt to divert traffic uh, in the square. There is not a particularly strong presence of guards There are traffic police uh, uh, in evidence, and uh, one or two members of the People's Liberation Army I've caught in pictures there as uh, we watch this on a monitor, too, uh, uh, some distance from the square. But uh, there has not been any clearing of the square as yet. Uh, and and no particular evidence of any great excitement or enthusiasm on the part of the people. As you can see, they're going about uh, their noonday business. It's uh, a quarter after 12 uh, here in Peking, and the custom of the workers here is to go uh, sometimes go home for lunch and uh, have a little nap. Uh, Some of those are doing that now, I would judge. At the Great Hall of the People, uh, we see no particular excitement there either. Those uh, stands uh, alongside of Tiananmen Gate, uh, which uh, you have caught an occasional picture of, are permanent stands erected for the great national holidays here. And uh, indeed, when Premier Ceausescu of uh, Romania came, uh, they were filled with reviewing uh, the dignitaries, the fishermen, part of the diplomatic corps, and there were some speeches made there. 
up there on that uh, Tiananmen Gate is where official welcoming speeches are made. That was the very spot from which Mao proclaimed the success of the revolution in 1949 and uh, is used for all such great occasions uh, in Peking. Here comes the motorcade now, as you see, and uh, past the tower, the traffic tower there, uh, it will be sweeping on along Tiananmen J Street. The president is in the first car, or uh, he was in the first car when they left the airport. I think they put a uh, a, lead, a greeting uh, appropriate, uh, perhaps considered uh, for the a visiting head of a state not recognized by uh, the Chinese People's Republic. And uh, the bicyclists uh, continue on their way with uh, barely a passing glance at this motorcade. Eric? Walter, there's more fuss when the president goes to the theater in Broadway in New York. And there is in this. But it isn't, I think, just because we don't have relations with them. It's that um, you can't turn these people around this fast. They've been conditioned for 20 years to think of the United States as the enemy and a rather monstrous one in many, res many respects. Well, do you think that the subdued greeting, and I think you simply have to say it is subdued, Eric, Very, has any, excuse me, varied by any standards we know. Uh, yes, yes, exceedingly so. Do, do you think it's uh, intentional? Is it? A, oh, is absolutely. It? Everything's intentional. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was suggesting that uh, intentional in the sense of, of saying, uh, look, we have quite a long way to go before uh, before this friendship becomes uh, more than a hand clasp and becomes arms around our, each other's shoulders. Indeed, and we'll get more feeling of the, the old relationship uh, tonight at the, uh, the banquet in the Great Hall. For indeed, that is the president's schedule. He is going to uh, be driving another 10 minutes along uh, uh, Chang'anji, this great wide boulevard here now, uh, as he passes the gate of heavenly peace, the gate in going into the forbidden city. The five portals there go back into the uh, imperial city. Don't you get the feeling, Walter, these massive squares, all this space, these enormous but few buildings, sort of diminish people. You get a, I get a feeling of being a sort of an ant crawling along in the middle of it. If you're, uh, this is a politicized country entirely, and if you must uh, maneuver and manipulate the minds of millions and millions of people on a mass basis, you've got to have massive containers and receptacles in which to do that. That is why I think they have these great squares of this kind. I noticed there, Eric, uh, we saw a, uh, a Chinese camera crew, I believe, in that open car following the motorcade, and, and that is the first evidence I've seen of uh, the Chinese uh, uh, journalistic interest in this trip. This this broadcast is not being carried live here. Uh, they're that, limited. They're not going to carry it? Well, I, I don't know. They're not going to carry it. It's not being carried live. Uh, they do not have uh, daytime live television normally. And uh, it, uh, whether it'll be summarized in some fashion on the two hours of television they have tonight, uh, we just don't know. We have no way of knowing. The president now whipping around for another about a five-minute drive until he gets to his uh, uh, his guest quarters. Uh, then at 3 o'clock this afternoon, peaking time, that's two hours and 45 minutes from now, he has his first formal session with Joe and Lai, the first uh, sitting down to talk about uh, 
the many, many mutual problems and uh, what the president has said are his hopes uh, of establishing some uh, dialogue for eventual peace. And, uh, and then tonight, the banquet uh, proffered by Premier Zhou Enlai to President Nixon. This is Walter Cronkite with Eric Severide, speaking for CBS News from Peking. In a moment, our China experts in the studio will give their reactions to the welcome the president has received so far in Peking. Like all countries, I suppose, China greets its diplomatic visitors, even heads of state like Mr. Nixon, with varying degrees of pomp, depending on the visitor's relationship with his host. In June 1971, the Chinese pulled out all the stops for one of their most loyal friends. The visiting dignitaries were President Nicolae Ceausescu of Romania and his wife. At the Peking airport to greet them, as he was today to greet President and Mrs. Nixon, Zhou Enlai himself. The traditional greeting among comrades. Not the handshake deemed more appropriate for the American president. Many thousands were there at the airport for this impressive greeting to the Romanians who have steadfastly maintained warm relations, even... Uh, against Russia's strenuous objections. This reception reflects China's gratitude. Chao and Ceausescu's in an open car for a spectacular motorcade along the route that was deserted when President Truman went by. And in Tiananmen Square, which we saw a moment ago empty, it was full of dancing, waving Chinese and uh, spectacular displays of the warmth of... Uh, the official greeting which Nikolai Ceausescu received. Now, we've seen the uh, first uh, act of President Nixon's reception in Peking, and it was very different from that which they gave uh, Ceausescu. Let me ask our experts uh, how they would uh, appraise the welcome. Did you expect it uh, to be warmer than it was, uh, Alan Whiting? No, frankly, uh, Charles, I didn't think it could be any warmer. The Chinese have been uh, telling their people that Nixon's policies in Indochina are bankrupt. They've been telling their people that his State of the Union message was a bankrupt, deceitful message. They have told their people everything that is wrong with U.S. policy and done nothing that could lead to a warm, popular reception that would be sincere. And I don't think they're trying to be hypocritical. I think they'll be genuinely polite and correct, but I wouldn't think that with the issues that are outstanding on Taiwan, on Indochina, that they would try to put on a show just to uh, be a spectacular for the American audience. Do you think, uh, Ross Terrell, having recently returned from China, that as the trip goes on uh, and it becomes better known to the Chinese people, that uh, he may receive uh, more popular response than was accorded him this evening? It's possible, Charles, but if so, that would be the surprise rather than what we've seen tonight. Tonight uh, reminded us what we should not ever forget that this is a business-like meeting, that there are serious problems uh, between these two countries, and it's the first step in a give and take, but no answers 
no agreements are yet in sight. I think, secondly, it underlines that the Chinese haven't changed. This is the kind of reception they would give in the circumstances that Richard Nixon found himself today. And that's a symbol of the larger situation. Uh, I think I touched on it earlier in the evening. The initiative here is mainly from the American side. Richard Nixon wanted to go to China. What I saw tonight is a correct, quiet greeting. They're saying, you've come here, well, we'll see what you've got to say. One of the most bold and enduring achievements of the Nixon administration was establishing relations with the People's Republic of China. For more than 20 years, the United States had kept China in diplomatic isolation. I think we cannot overstate the importance of President Nixon's opening to China in 1972. The Nixon's historic visit to China in 1972 changed the world. After our arrival, we went to the guest house and uh, they were exchanging pleasantries, which is a Chinese tradition. And uh, they were sitting on couches and they had the tangerines and the white rabbit, which is candy, and then hot tea, which is a tradition of Chinese. And uh, they were having a great time. And one of the, the great pictures that came out of that was Cho Enlai and the president were banning back and forth. And uh, something caught them really kind of a, a humorous event. And they were all, you could just see all four of them, plus the interpreters that were there just laughing and enjoying one another. It was a great moment to start that, that visit to the People's Republic of China, which, as many people have said, was a week that changed the world. The president was in substantive meetings most of the time. Her schedule was to go out and, and be with the uh, Chinese people. I mean, we made arrangements for her to visit a Chinese kitchen in one of the hotels. Uh, we went to schools. We, they took us to a lot of uh, to interesting places. They took us to uh, beds where they told us that um, they were going to give us panda bears, who were going to be the gift from the people of China to the people of the United States. The picture of her in the zoo with the Mei Ling was just a great shot. And those pandas, you know, have been, have been in the Washington Zoo ever since 1972. But her graciousness and the way the Chinese people responded to her. Uh, when you have a billion people in China, she would walk into an event and there'd be four or five hundred people all around her. And she's, they're Chinese and she's an American. And as a result, she was, she was a standout. And with that red coat that she wore during the week, uh, she was just uh, beautiful. The, the trip uh, all the way around uh, was significant from her standpoint because she was more visible obviously, than the president. She was really the, the main thing that we sent back to the United States of what they were seeing. I noticed Dr. Ripley is wearing a panda tie, and I have my panda pin, I'll have you know. And I think pandemonium is going to break out right here at the zoo. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hello. Hi. Just checking to see how the panda thing went. I've been in a meeting, and so I wasn't oh, able to Oh, they check. were just darling. Yeah, did they, uh, they raved about them. And, uh, how, did it, how did it work? Were you able to get up to them? Do you pet them or things like that, or they don't allow that? Or how does no, it work? No, they're glass cage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But did they get a good picture of it, I hope? Uh, well, there were an awfully lot of people there. 
Boy, it was well covered. Good, good. But a lot of interest, and how did the people seem to enjoy it? I just, yeah, they yeah, they got a good, uh, I got that even the press was pleased, huh? Yeah, I think so. They're comic little things, you know, they yeah. packed yeah. up. And, Do they really? Oh, yeah. Uh, they had a... Um, uh, a structure inside the cage, sort of wood, you know, and one of them climbed up there and sat up there and chewed his toast. He had cinnamon toast. It was a scream. I hope Isn't they got great? it, but Isn't there were so great? many, I'm just not sure how well they Oh, well, they'll come back and get them, and I'll have to be great. I'd like to mention, to add to what Larry has said, it was not insignificant that whenever you saw Mrs. Nixon, she was in a red coat. And it was part of the strategy. It was part of the contrast. It may seem very rinky-dink, but it spoke volumes. Mrs. Nixon's first foray was to the kitchen of the Beijing Hotel. Mrs. Nixon, would you be kind enough to describe for our audience some of the beautiful foods you saw inside? This uh, food is so exquisite that I, each uh, dish was a treat. These were things that didn't have to do with politics, but had to do with the way a society lives that were brand new to us. Indeed, it was also new that ABC brought in Harvard China scholar Jim Thompson to show anchor Howard K. Smith how to use chopsticks. With chopsticks, I would eat lightly. I couldn't make anything stick. Show me how you do it. Stanley, I'm told that Mr. Kissinger has improved his technique, that uh, no one knows that the president has taken chopstick lessons yet. At uh, about 2.30 or maybe a little bit before, apparently Joe and Lai appeared at the guest house unannounced got a hold of Henry and said that uh, Chairman Mao would like to uh, see the president if he would come over. Henry rushed upstairs, uh, told the president, he slapped on his coat, two of went out, grabbed Bob Taylor on the way, and uh, took off for uh, Mao's residence, unbeknownst to anybody else. Taylor came into the Chapin's schedule planning meeting and said that this is what they were going to do. He was very concerned about it. Uh, but that he was under orders to tell no one and that they would have to tell Ziegler make any public thing out of it until they got back. So Dwight came right down and told me. We debated how to handle the thing for a while, called Ziegler and had him come over, and I told him. Ron was holding a tangerine in his hand. Took a bite of it, getting about half the tangerine in one bite, peeling it off. He was, to say the least, a little startled. We spent... Uh, a very long hour and a half trying to figure out what the uh, various contingencies were since we had no idea when they'd be back or what would happen in the meantime. Since we couldn't announce any of this, uh, we didn't exactly know how to handle it. We debated it back and forth as to what to do. Also speculated on all the uh, wild range of possibilities that you have when you're sitting in a Chinese guest house with Red Army troops uh, guarding you outside and you kind of wonder the president's taken off alone with no staff, no security, except one agent, no doctor, etc. Gentlemen, I must interrupt you now. Alas, the time, the inexorable hand of the clock has reached us. I want to thank you, gentlemen, and our thanks also to Walter Cronkite, Eric Severide, Dan Rather, and Bernard Kalb 
for describing and analyzing this initial phase of President Nixon's visit to China. It began, as we've seen, not exactly as everyone might have expected, but uh, not inauspiciously either. But this is just the beginning of a beginning. And in the days to come, we will see more and bringing, we'll be bringing you the events as they transpire. For instance, we'll be back next in a few hours at 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, with our coverage of the first meeting between the President and Zhou Enlai and the state banquet in Peking's Hall of the People. This is Charles Collingwood, CBS News. Good night. This has been a CBS News special report. The President in China, arrival in Peking. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.